Welcome to Act Two of the Drama of Scripture, and Ben Armstrong and myself are here to uh, walk you through the uh, second development in the story of the Bible. And so, Ben, uh, tell us what you've got for us today. Yeah, we have the big plot twist, Rebellion in the Kingdom, is the title of our act for today, uh, looking specifically at Genesis 3 through 11. Uh, And so, you know, last time we were together, uh, Dr. Clem, you introduced us to uh, creation and how uh, we saw really a lot about who God is. He's good. Everything he made was good. Uh, he, he was sovereign in that uh, he made everything with his with speaking it into existence, and then he named it. And, uh, and when we left off last time, everything was good. Adam and Eve, yes. the first man and woman, uh, were in the Garden of Eden, enjoying God's presence and working in the garden, uh, being fruitful and, and uh, filling the earth. And so that's kind of where we left off. Yeah. And today, uh, we, we get that, that big plot twist right. of every good story. If you really right. think about it, uh, every good story has a central conflict. Yes, um, that's so true. And so the, the Bible is no different. I think really the Bible is the, the ultimate story. It's reality. And yeah. that's why we like good stories that have yeah. good conflicts right. where uh, evil comes into play mm. and it, it gives us a crisis that has to be solved. And so today we're going to look at that uh, crisis. And so... We, we look at conflict and crisis and uh, today the rebellion in the kingdom. Uh, we just want to define that as a literary term because I think as we look at mm-hmm. the drama of Scripture and, and the literature of the Bible, we want to look at the central conflict a little more. And so uh, Eugene Peterson's helpful. He describes mm-hmm. central conflict as uh, a catastrophe has occurred. Mm-hmm. And we're no longer in the continuity with our good beginning. Mm-hmm. We've been separated from it by a disaster. We are also, of course, separated from our good end. We are, in other words, in the middle of a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, a really good way of summarizing it. And so yes. we're going we're gonna to learn a little bit about the mess today. Yes. I love Peterson. He's a good writer, um, clear, and uh, always has some great insights for us. And, uh, and really part of our worldview, if you think about it, you know, how did it all start? And we talked about that in creation. And then we go to, well, what happened? And so we're going to try to unpack the what happened here as you so... Uh, um, skillfully kind of set the stage for us. And uh, really, you know, as I think about like the importance of this, to really get a very clear understanding of our, our own brokenness and the depth of sin. And of course, we're not going to be able to unpack a doctrine of sin and all of this, but but I think it's very important for us to see in our worldview or in the drama of Scripture um, how the story, the plot line does address that and how it brings a solution to that through the work of Christ. Yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll dive into that today. Yes. Uh, and so really to start off with, we, we want to look at uh, just a note about, is Genesis 3 actual history? Mm. You know, as we, yes. we come to Genesis 3, you have uh, all kinds of really interesting things happening. You have a talking serpent. You have this mysterious tree. You have, mm-hmm. you know, Adam and Eve eating of this fruit. Mm-hmm. And, and all of humanity plunged into sin. Right. And, and some might question uh, whether that's actually true. Uh, did that actually happen? Or is it a myth? Um, is it just a legend, a tale? And uh, our authors, uh, uh, Goheen and Bartholomew, have a great quote that just help us frame uh, Genesis 3. They say, we need to take seriously the events recorded in Genesis 3. Even while we recognize that the details, including a talking serpent and symbolic trees, are unlike those of any historical text we are used to. In our view, the third chapter of Genesis does tell us reliably about the mysterious origin of evil 
in God's world. I think that's helpful. Uh, mis- uh, evil is mysterious. Yes. No, you're right. And uh, I think this is uh, a, a good beginning for us to set the stage with and hit those questionable pieces of the narrative. And I'm so grateful for the way that our authors do that and uh, help us be able to think responsibly about those um, matters that you've just detailed, because they are the things that uh, uh, people will begin to question or will begin to immediately classify as myth. Well, that's just a mythological kind of an account. But uh, as as you unpack the story for us, we'll begin to see how um, they're not so strange, you know, in the end. So I think uh, hopefully most of us are familiar with the story of Genesis 3. We don't have time to read Genesis 3 through 11. Uh, but, but just to remind ourselves of the setting of the Garden of Eden, we, we learned last week that the creation is God's kingdom. He, he is exercising sovereignty and authority and giving his people a mission um, and so creation is God's kingdom and the Garden of Eden is God's kingdom. So what we're going to uh, read about today and talk about today happened in creation in God's kingdom. And uh, the description of Eden uh, shows it uh, to be a place where God himself dwells. And I think this is just a really incredible thought and one that I think we might even have a hard time mm-hmm. imagining that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, that God was physically present and they were able to to feel that and experience him in the Garden of Eden. What an incredible thought Oh yeah, uh, uh, of God, the Garden of Eden before Genesis 3. It is I know, beautiful. it is. It is a beautiful thought. And it's, uh, it's almost hard to sort of like contemplate that sort of idyllic, is that the right word, that we would want to use uh, kind of a setting. And we often uh, will use... Uh, when we see something lush and beautiful and comfortable and perfect, we often refer to it as as, as it uh, being so Eden-like. Mm. And uh, so here they are in that presence of, with the Lord, uh, walking in his presence and enjoying him is uh, it, it, something that we have to look forward to mm. uh, in, in the coming days of eternity. Mm. Amen. So the Genesis 3 starts out and uh, we get this immediate picture of the tempter, this serpent uh, he's described uh, as a wild animal that, that God had created. And uh, John Walton has a helpful comment. He says, The serpent comes with nothing out of the ordinary that would alert the woman's suspicions. Uh, and I think, you know, there, there's all kinds of questions in Genesis 3. Like, you know, should Eve have been, uh, you know, uh, flagged, you know, oh, this is a talking serpent here. Mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't listen. Or, well, like, we don't know. Right. Uh, those are really cool things to talk about and to imagine and to discuss. But, um, it, it's a serpent that God had created, and he's described as a crafty serpent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a lot of wordplay in the original uh, Hebrew mm-hmm. between the word naked in 225 and the word crafty here in 3.1. They're very similar sounding in Hebrew. And uh, Bruce Walkie just points out that there's this wordplay, and it links the two scenes of at the end of Genesis 2, where God made Adam and Eve, and they're naked and not ashamed, and then uh, Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to the serpent. And, and there's a painful vulnerability, Walkie points out here, that Adam and Eve uh, are, are naked and they're unashamed. And then this crafty serpent is coming into the garden. Um, but we get this clue here. It's a crafty serpent that God had made. Mm. 
um, I think this is helpful that the serpent is not a myth. Right. Uh, it's something that God made. Mm-hmm. It's real history. Uh, and so we can know that it actually happened. So this crafty serpent that God had made, uh, we later know from Revelation 12 and other passages that it's Satan. Mm. Um, it's, it's the deceiver. It's the tempter. It's the accuser. Um, Satan is, is coming to Eve through this tempter. And as we look at the tempter, uh, we, we, we want to look at the temptation. What, what is the serpent trying to get Eve and Adam to do? Uh, and and w- what really is going on there? And so before we get to the temptation, though, we, we have this mythical tree, mm-hmm. the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, it's a really interesting tree. And it's a lot of speculation about it because we're just not given that much information about it. But I think we can include a couple things. Uh, the tree in and of itself is not evil. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're left to conclude that the pursuit of this knowledge is not evil or else the tree would not have been in God's good garden. Mm-hmm. He made this tree. Right. And I think John Walton helps us here that God's prohibition of the tree shouldn't lead us to conclude that there was something wrong with what the tree gave. Mm. Rather than God's putting the tree there simply to test Adam and Eve, it's more in keeping with his character to understand that the tree would have had use in the future. Mm. When the time was right, the first couple would have been able to eat from it. So the issue at hand concerning this tree is that of timing. Mm -hmm. God had specifically forbidden Adam and Eve from eating of it, and that command was still in effect when the temptation comes in Genesis chapter three. Uh, do you have any thoughts about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yeah, Dr. Clem, that's uh, a tough one. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, well, I think, um, you know, as you mentioned uh, about it, and I think you're focusing our attention quite nicely that uh, we, you know, we don't know a lot beyond what the text actually just records for us. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, as we try to unpack it, uh, we just want to be careful to, you know, delve into and wrestle with the details we have and maybe not speculate beyond, beyond that. Um, you know, story is always fun. And whenever we're talking about stories, it's always fun to try to fill in the gaps here and there. But as we tried to do that, we realized, well, we're just filling in the gaps, trying to connect the dots from our own perspective. But, um, but I think, uh, uh, you know, as you have detail for us, this is the serpent, this is the tree, this is life in the garden, and um, and you know God is using it uh, in order to ultimately accomplish, you know, His creation purposes. And uh, I also like the the um, the um, detail that you brought out about kind of like thinking back to how does how does you know this moment tie into what we saw in Genesis one and two, and then how does it then again play out in subsequent chapters, chapters you know ten, eleven, beyond. And, uh, you know, you get those echoes back and forth with uh, terms. And so, you know, all of these things are at play here for us. But in terms of, um, uh, you know, anything beyond what we have in the text itself, not, not too much more than, than that. Okay, good. Uh, one of the interesting things about the temptation that we want to look at here is what, what exactly was the temptation? What was mm-hmm. the serpent trying to get Eve to do? And really, we, we see that Uh, our authors in in the book do a great job of pointing out that the temptation was about human autonomy. Mm -hmm. As we think about the beginning chapters of Genesis, uh, God is king. Mm -hmm. He is ruler. He is sovereign. He is the one who commands. And here in the temptation in Genesis 3, the serpent offers Adam and Eve, specifically Eve, the ability of being her own ruler, the ability of choosing what is best for her. Uh, the ability to determine what is right and wrong. Uh, and 
Goheen and Bartholomew give us a great definition of, of autonomy. They, they say it means choosing oneself as the source for determining what is right and wrong, rather than relying on God's word for direction. Uh, and so, you know, right from the beginning, we've had God's word of direction to Adam and Eve. Um, God told them what this tree was. God placed them in the garden. He made them. And then he gave them uh, a commands to follow. And here, uh, the, the serpent, the tempter, is very tricky. And he, he's trying to get uh, Adam and Eve to become their own source of determining what is right and wrong. And, and so Adam and Eve here have a choice. They, they could obey God or they could defy him. They could yield to God's law and enjoy life. Or they can try to find their own way apart from his instruction uh, and experience the death that God said would come. And what's tricky here is, is the tempter says, no, you, you actually won't die. Mm-hmm. It, it, that God, God didn't tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what happens? We all know what happens, right? Uh, Eve eats of the fruit. We don't know what fruit it was. Maybe an apple. Who knows? <laughs> uh, she eats of the fruit and then she yes. gives to her husband who the text says is with her yes. also. Yeah. And he eats too. Mm-hmm. And at first, the serpent seems to be right. Mm-hmm. They don't die. Right. They, they don't drop over dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- what happens? Like, how, how does God's word that they would die, how does that come to pass? And uh, again, our authors are so helpful. They, they say something in them and between them dies. Mm-hmm. Their sense of themselves and their relationship with each other is shattered. Mm-hmm. They become morbidly self-conscious. They're aware of their nakedness. For the first time, they feel shame. Mm-hmm. What's far worse, their relationship with the Lord God is also broken. They hide from him in fear and in shame. And, mm-hmm. and you get such a drastic change in the text from their walking and talking with mm-hmm. God. They're loving each other. They have such a like perfect relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the verses right after this scene just paint such a shameful, fearful, uh, hiding uh, th- there's not much good happening after they eat of the fruit. Right. Something immediately happens when they eat. Right. Uh, and and they go on to say, although the man and woman do not die physically, at least not right away, we see from this story that death can mean much more than the end of physical life. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the consequences of the fall immediately. Is, is their, their, their really picture of who they are and how they fit into God's world is broken now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the uh, that's uh, really a good moment for us to just kind of think that through because you see how the brokenness does really come into the perfect environment, and the brokenness um, is is indeed death, and but death being as you said not just uh, the cessation of you know physical life at that moment, but really a separation. Mm-hmm. There's a separation that happens uh, between. The husband and the wife, Adam and Eve. There's a separation that happens between, um, you know, Adam and Eve and the Lord God. And then there's a really like a brokenness that they begin to experience in the own their own creation in which they're living. And so you see, you know, uh, they really do dying. They will die as the the Hebrew kind of plays out there. And um, uh, so, but this is such an important, I think, moment for us in the drama of the story to just really see the nature of sin and the deadliness of sin and the brokenness of sin because uh, that really is a turning point in so much of our our thinking, our theology, and, and the way that we live it out from that point on. Yeah, and uh, I want to I talk a little bit about that. Uh, you bring up a great point. When we think about 
uh, Adam and Eve and their original temptation. I think we can sometimes dismiss uh, their temptation uh, as as being applicable to our lives today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can eat any fruit we want. Uh, we don't live in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God doesn't physically walk. Uh, you know, we, we can't sense God's presence among us um, in physical ways. And, you know, we, we don't have the, the exact same temptation. But I think our authors are really helpful here in what's really at the base of the temptation. Mm-hmm. It's human autonomy. Mm-hmm. And that is a temptation I think every single human being since Adam and Eve have struggled with. Mm-hmm. Uh, human autonomy uh, is rampant in our culture. Yes. It's rampant in our thinking. I think right. it's rampant in our churches. Right. Uh, and so as we think about the temptation to human autonomy today, um, there's a really helpful quote that I found. Uh, when we think about what does it mean uh, to grow as a Christian? What does it mean to uh, love God? What does it mean to grow in maturity uh, and when it relates to human autonomy, and uh, a commentator just has a really helpful illustration, and he he talks about a parent's love for a child, mm. and how uh, part of a parent's love for a child is really trying to eliminate the child's need for the parent. Mm. Right? Like a parent is a success uh, if the child doesn't need the parent anymore. Right. Uh, if you have a you know a child into their seventies and they're still dependent on their parents <laughs> to pay their rent, like we we don't look at that and say that's a great job of raising that child. Yes. Right, so so they want to eliminate the child's need for the parent, but God's love, in contrast, our commentator says, is not optimized in His becoming superfluous, but in our becoming dependent on Him in continually maturing ways. God offered nothing less to Adam and Eve than the privilege of freedom and the joy of dependence. Our society treats this as an oxymoron and labels God a tyrant. In rejecting dependence on God, though in no way escaping from it, people choose a far more costly dependency on themselves and their own resources. And in seeking autonomy, freedom, and power, they only forge new chains. Yes. I think uh, it's really helpful to think through our lives today. uh, And and as we think about how we fit into the story, um, we always struggle with finding joy in dependence. Yes. Uh, we, we like independence, right. not dependence. Right. We, we like to throw off dependence, uh, and, and we love freedom. Mm-hmm. And really, looking at how God structured human life in the beginning, mm-hmm. it was freedom to love. Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve had freedom to love God mm-hmm. or to defy him. Mm-hmm. And, and really, they could live in the joy of dependence on God. God had set up the world so that humans were dependent on him in, in ever-increasing ways as mm-hmm. they know him and enjoy him. Um, but, but really, you know, Adam and Eve choose to, to ex- exercise their freedom and they throw off that dependence. Right. They seek to become independent. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, uh, they, they don't live in joy anymore. Right. And I think that's something we all can empathize with. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we all struggle with the joy of dependence. Um, what are some ways you think our culture uh, exercises autonomy or, mm-hmm. or ways that, you know, we w- would live in autonomy apart from God? How, what, yeah. what, are you, what are some? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think it really is um, critical, uh, as you as you say, because I think, you know, we want to be um, our, our, our culture is is really trying to press into um, laws or um, societal norms, you know, break the old societal norms that free us to do exactly what we want. You know, if I want to, you know, engage in more 
you know, drug use or if I want to engage in more just, uh, you know, pleasurable activity. I want to be free from the consequences of those kinds of things. I want to be the one who determines my destiny or my ultimate, um, um, you know, I, I want to take responsibility for everything. I don't want anybody to tell me anything. But I, I think that, uh, um, you know, there's, there's this push back against any kind of institutional sort of um, uh, boundaries. Um, I think particularly in church life even, it's hard mm-hmm. at times to, you know, communicate to a, to a growing or a, you know, an up-and-coming congregation, the value, for example, of church membership, mm-hmm. or you know, what does it mean to be part of a community where there is boundary, there is love and care for one another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we want to be free from all of those kind of accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I think about uh, autonomy, uh, I think about it in our society, we want less and less accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I want less and less accountability mm-hmm. in my own life. Um, I want to just do what I want to do when I want to do it. But ultimately that works just in the opposite because that quest for this, this freedom from something really becomes, you know, um, slavery to something, you know, and that ultimately will, our, our idolatry will ultimately devour us hmm. and destroy us. And what, what the text is offering us, what the scripture ultimately, and what the drama of uh, scripture ultimately offers us is freedom that comes in Christ hmm. and uh, so I, I, I see it um, uh, you know all around I, I see that uh, you know just just take whatever institution you want to talk about the church or government or education there's always this sort of like pushback to be less and less accountable so and of course we're talking in broad categories. Yeah, we are. We are. Um, but I think really there's there's a push uh, that that we can determine our identity. We can determine uh, what what marks us as successful. Right. Uh, we can determine um, what things make us happy or not. Right. And I think uh, you know it, it's an illusion, right. as, as the as our one commentator points out, uh, trying to reject dependence on God, though in no way escaping from it. Right. People choose a far more costly dependency. Right. Um, it's on themselves. It's on their own resources. And, um, you know, pe- people uh, were never made to, to be dependent on themselves. Right. And so there are all kinds of problems that right. arise because uh, you will fail yourself. Right. And, uh, you, you know, people suffer a lot mm-hmm. um, because they've tried to be dependent on themselves instead of on God mm-hmm. and really, you know, just forging new chains. I think mm-hmm. that's such a powerful concept mm-hmm. uh, of trying to, to pursue freedom and just putting on more chains. Right. And that's really what, what Adam and Eve end up doing in the garden. Yes. Um, and it, it's not a happy ending, but there is hope. Right. And I think that's, what's incredible right. to think through um, here. You know, Adam and Eve uh, choose to defy God, uh, but, but God is not phased by their rebellion, it's actually working in his plan. Right. And so you, you see this incredible picture of hope in Genesis 3.15 where mm-hmm. uh, God curses the serpent. Mm-hmm. And he, he promises that one day a serpent crusher will arise. Mm-hmm. And we ultimately, uh, we want to give the story away, but, but we know <laughs> who that serpent crusher is. And we're going to get to him in a few, uh, in a few podcasts here. But the, the serpent crusher will come one day. There is hope. Uh, there, there's hope in that God doesn't immediately put Adam and Eve to death. 
Mm-hmm. If you think about what God yes. could have done right. as the, the sovereign king, uh, he, he could have crushed them the moment they ate of the fruit. Mm-hmm. But, he, but he doesn't. He, mm-hmm. In his mercy, he yes. clothes them. He provides for them. He pursues them in the garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what a picture of the gospel we see already in Genesis 3. And then graciously, he drives them out of the garden mm-hmm. uh, so they can't eat of the tree uh, of eternal life. And, and so he drives them out of, of Eden, mm-hmm. gives them the commands uh, to work hard and, and still calls them to, to live out the good work that he's given them. Um, but it'll look a little different now. Mm-hmm. It'll look drastically different, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and really... All we see from Genesis 4 down through chapter 11 mm-hmm. is just this downward spiral of yes. sin. Mm-hmm. Life after the fall is broken. Mm-hmm. Life after the fall is hard. In Genesis 4, we're familiar uh, perhaps with the story of Cain and Abel, mm-hmm. uh, the first uh, children given to Adam and Eve. Uh, Cain murders Abel mm-hmm. over uh, uh, you know some sacrifices that... Uh, God didn't like of Cain's. He rises up and he, he murders his brother. This is a second generation mm-hmm. uh, humanity murder. Mm-hmm. I mean, just utter brokenness right out of the gate. Just increased uh, just sin already. Mm-hmm. Genesis 4, at the end of chapter 4, you have this guy named Lamech. Mm-hmm. He's the seventh descendant of Cain. And he uh, he boasts. It's just quite a quite a sinful boast that he makes. He embraces habitual violence. Uh, he has multiple wives. You see the first sentence of polygamy. Mm-hmm. Um, and just you know, increasing, increasing uh, sin. Genesis 5, you have a little glimmer of hope in Enoch, who's the seventh descendant of Seth. Mm-hmm. He, he's told to have walked with God, and he actually doesn't die. Mm-hmm. He goes straight up to God. Incredible. A um, little bit of hope there. But but really, you know, a lot of those chapters, Genesis 4, 5, 6, and 7, they're, they're these genealogies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to figure out why mm-hmm. there are genealogies in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons in the early part of Genesis is what's the refrain of the genealogy? This person lived and mm-hmm. then they died. Mm-hmm. This person lived and they died. This person lived and they died. And you, you hear this constant theme of death, mm-hmm. death, death, death. Adam and Eve questioned whether death would come in Genesis 3. And the subsequent chapters of Genesis confirm mm-hmm. death comes yes. and, and death through sin. There's no questioning uh, the error of the fall now. Mm-hmm. Uh, death is reigning in these chapters. In Genesis 6, I mean, you have sin, sin, and more sin. You have right. probably one of the most intense descriptions of the condition of human sinfulness in scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, God says that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Mm-hmm. What a summary statement of the world. Uh, just three chapters separated mm-hmm. uh, from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 6 through 8, we have uh, the account of the flood. And, and it's such a rich story. We encourage you to, to, to read that story. But this event is uh, a, a beautiful reality of God's goodness, even through judgment. Mm-hmm. And so God uh, judges all of the earth for uh, the sinfulness that is just rampant. Um, but there, there's even hope because in Genesis 9, God makes a covenant mm-hmm. uh, with Noah. He's recreating almost right. in, a, in a sense. He's recreating, creating a covenant and blessing again. <laughs> the goodness of God to mm-hmm. bless mm-hmm. man. He blesses Noah. He gives this type of creation mandate again. Uh, multiply throughout the earth. Fill the earth. 
uh, subdue it, have dominion over it. Um, but, but we see right after Genesis 9 in the, the Tower of Babel incident, uh, just human, humans uh, rebel against God's command again. Right. Uh, we see sinfulness uh, is present even after the flood. It doesn't get rid of it because humans live through the flood. You, you have this uh, rebellion against God's command again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so God drives them. He, he confuses all of their languages and they're driven throughout the world. And, uh, and, then, and then we get to Genesis, the end of Genesis 11 into Genesis 12. And mm-hmm. we have this uh, glimpse of hope again. Mm-hmm. God picks one man, Abram. Mm-hmm. And he makes a covenant mm-hmm. with Abram. Mm-hmm. And really through Abram, we're, we're going to see God's plan uh, focus in and develop. Uh, but, but really all up until that point, you just have this downward spiral of sin. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a depressing part of the story. It's, and mm-hmm. I think if we skip over it too quickly, we fail to appreciate the, the beauty, mm-hmm. uh, the depth of the redemption that's to come. Right. If we, if we don't take a moment and think about uh, just the effects of the fall, of our quest for human autonomy, the brokenness that that brings, uh, the death, um, the relational hurt. I mean, all, all of that is detailed in mm-hmm. Genesis 3 through 11. And I think it's given to us uh, to show us that this is what sin is. This is where... This is where autonomy leads. Yes, yeah, that's a good uh, a good um, point for us to maybe think about that. Just kind of take that idea that you were unpacking earlier about autonomy and uh, the consequences of autonomy. Because you know, if you think about it, um, the narrative is moving pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, from you know, we're in one and two, and uh, you know, we see the creation. The narrative is kind of slow moving. Mm-hmm. The pace of it is is deliberate. We see the interaction, lots of dialogue between um, the Lord God, Adam and Eve. And then, of course, uh, the narrative pace really then begins to pick up right after the fall. And, uh, you know, almost in sort of like a rapid succession, we're seeing, you know, as you, you know, it's depressing, it's heavy, it's ominous. But, um, you know, we're, we're spanning hundreds of years in a few chapters, but we're left with that, um, that, that impression of the brokenness, you know, brokenness uh, between uh, Adam and Eve, brokenness within the, you know, the family of Adam and Eve, brokenness between God and um, the creation that he's brought into existence. And, uh, but then at the same time, you know, to bring out maybe a little bit of what you were thinking about earlier, but we do see like these glimmers of, okay, well, here's Enoch. He walked with God. You know, so here's, here's somebody not pursuing autonomy, but pursuing dependence upon the Lord God. And then we, t- we pause now uh, in 6, 7, and 8, and we see, we see Noah, you know, really um, living as a man dependent. And uh, to your point, just uh, that undergirding theme of mercy, God delaying, God waiting, God being very long-suffering. Uh, I mean, and as you commented a couple of times, God could have, but he didn't. You know, he could have, well, what could he have done? He could have just like, fried the creation and everybody in it at the moment mm-hmm. and just like a like a crumbled up piece of paper just thrown it aside and and started over again but he didn't he was acting as a faithful creator um, working with his creation being very long-suffering being very patient and then uh, and then you know but then also being righteous executing judgment mm-hmm. in the right way and so you know when we think about this 
this uh, sort of prolonged waiting, this long-suffering nature of God, we uh, you know we begin to get a different picture of who our God is. He's not just this whack-a-mole kind of God. Mm-hmm. You know, you do wrong, get a whack. Mm-hmm. But he is a God, a, 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 really a covenant-keeping king, mm-hmm. you know, who is loyal to his creation and very long-suffering with them, very patient with them, and uh, wanting to woo them and win them ultimately to himself. Mm-hmm. So we come to the end of this act, and uh, it's... You know, it's sad, it's heavy, mm-hmm. uh, but we have a little bit of hope, and we're really waiting to see, w- what is God going to do? Like, what is he going to do with humanity? How is he going to mm-hmm. how is He going to resolve this terrible conflict, right? I mean, it has to be resolved somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we don't like it when a, when a story mm-hmm. ends in conflict. Mm-hmm. I think uh, TV shows are uh, really good at ending seasons <laughs> right at a, a point of, yeah, there's no resolution. We want resolution. Right. And I think the next act is going to pick up on that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, the subsequent acts will, mm-hmm. will continue to, to flush that out. But I think it's important to see here, uh, it's, it's not really answered yet. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of heaviness for us to think through how, how we are uh, like Adam and Eve mm-hmm. in our quest to autonomy. And really, there, there are just so many unanswered questions as we think through this, this mm-hmm. narrative um, so many questions. And mm-hmm. I think you, you made a great point as we were talking uh, you know, last week about it. Uh, you know, it's, it's a good thing to explore unanswered questions. Yeah, yeah. It's part of a good story. It is, yeah. We try to, like, we try to fill in the gaps, and uh, we do our best. We can speculate. And we just have to realize that as we do that, those are just our own thoughts, you know, to fill in where the narrative is kind of silent. But, uh, but we like to do that. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think as we do that, we can come to some uh, good directions in terms of. Uh, uh, and I like in those in those moments when I'm not really sure, you know, what the point of the story is. I kind of like to fall back and say, okay, what is this story telling me about God? Hmm. You know, what is this story teaching me about man? Hmm. What is this story teaching me about sin? And usually, as I s- start asking myself those few little questions or a couple of those questions of curiosity, you know, begins to like say, okay, yeah, I do see, wow, I hadn't thought about how God mm-hmm. is showing himself to be a faithful creator. Um, and then also seeing about man, yeah, man is really, mm-hmm. he really is a selfish, um, you know, personal kingmaker. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then of course, then seeing just the destructiveness of sin and how that it will ultimately devour if I'm not careful and uh, give myself in slavery to it. Mm-hmm. Those are great, great thoughts. Uh, so I, I think as we think through uh, how do we tell this section of the story mm-hmm. uh, to unbelievers, there's a lot of, a lot of things as, as we engage in conversation with uh, people who don't know this story yet or don't believe it. Um, there, are, there are a lot of tricky things in this part of the story that we want to be careful thinking through and um, you know, this is a great thing to engage with other people, mm-hmm. other believers. To like, how, how would you tell the story of the flood to somebody? How would right. you tell the story about Adam and Eve to somebody, uh, someone who doesn't believe it? And uh, how, how can we think through, uh, you know, presenting this narrative in a way that's helpful to unbelievers as we share the gospel? That's right. something we encourage you to, uh, you know, get with other people and start discussing. Those are good things to discuss. Right. A good story is worth discussing. It is, yeah. And yes. uh, this is a great story to discuss. Yeah, and I think, um, I, I think maybe if we see Genesis 3 as you kind of unpacked it for us in this context of 
of Genesis 3 through 11, the, you know, the events of Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, make a little bit more sense in terms of like, all right, when they made this choice to be independent of God, we see these consequences that got played out. And we see that, that left to oneself, what, what eventuates? It's just more death and destruction. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, and, and then what, what kind of interrupts that story of self-destruction is God's judgment and then recreation. And so we begin to see, I think that context just gives us a little better sense because it's not, it's not always easy to talk about our sin or our brokenness or to try to explain the what happened. Like, well, what happened? How did it get so messed up? Well, this is how it got all messed up, you know. And um, it will continue to be messed up as long as we continue to keep pushing and pursuing our own autonomy. And of course, uh, apart from Christ, uh, that's what we'll continue to do. Hmm. So, um, but um, so as we kind of wrap up this particular part of the story, uh, we trust that uh, you'll be encouraged. And uh, as Ben has said, that you'll think about ways of representing this uh, to maybe family members, friends, or, or colleagues at work, and that um, you'll find some great hope as well in the God of um, the King of Kings hmm. and the God of Creation, the Author of it all. Thank you.